Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 116. It's about then, what was happening a hundred years ago in the aftermath of World War I, and it's about now. How World War I is being remembered and commemorated, written about and discussed, and importantly, it's about why and how we'll never let those events fall back into the mists of obscurity. So join us as we explore the many facets of World War I, then and now. This week on the show, we're going to explore the headlines in the news a hundred years ago in this last week of March 1919. Mike Schuster brings us a story that I'd never heard before about Korea's bid for independence and Japan's rebuff of that ambition. We're going to revisit the specifics of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points to remember them as they're abandoned at the Versailles Peace Conference. Dr. Edward Lengel introduces us to Doris Kellogg, who was not only a World War I nurse, but a truck mechanic as well. We remember Frank Woodruff Buckles, America's last World War I veteran, and we meet his descendant, Ken Buckles, who continues a legacy of service. Following up on our Valor Medals Review Task Force, we're joined by Dr. Timothy Westcott and Ashlyn Weber from Park University. For World War I war tech, we're going to talk about a post-World War I issue that's not about politics, but about a new opportunity ushering in a new era of cross-Atlantic transportation built on what was learned in World War I. All this on World War I Centennial News, which is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, the Star Foundation, the General Motors Foundation, and Walmart. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to this week's show. A hundred years ago this week, the headlines of the newspapers are, of course, filled with the news of the Versailles Peace Conference. It's really tumultuous. What is known as the Big Four, that's France, the UK, the US, and Italy, are seriously sparring. There are issues that are really hard to resolve, with parties compromising and then pulling back all week. The French are seeking and feel they must have reparation considerations, which isn't that unreasonable considering that a lot of the actual fighting and destruction happened on their turf. And of course, the Italians are fighting hard to secure their territorial claims. Other interesting stories this week include what to do with the Kaiser. This is a precursor to the idea of a world court and that leaders can be responsible for war crimes. The emboldened Japanese throw a match on the California tinder pile by trying to buy a bunch of the West Coast land from Mexico. And at the end of the week, trouble in northern Russia, which is a story we're going to expand on next week. With that as a setup, let's jump into our centennial time machine and head back to the last week of March 1919. Dateline, Saturday, March 29, 1919. Headline, Paris debating war or peace with Bolsheviks. French demand all Saar Valley as reparation. 
Japan idea of equality widens. Australians fear declaration to guard U.S. might protect Japan's claims in Orient. You'll hear more about some of Japan's activities in the region later in the program. Meanwhile, the next day, some interesting articles about the Kaiser. Dateline, Sunday, March 30, 1919. Headline, Allies propose to put ex-Kaiser on trial. Suicide rather than that, he declares. And the story reads, Paris, March 30, Associated Press. The Commission on Responsibility for the War has decided, first, solemnly to condemn the violation of the neutrality and all of the crimes committed by the Central Empires. Second, to urge the appointment of an international tribunal to judge all these responsible, including the former German emperor. To which there's an answering headline. Headline, Kaiser says he would kill himself rather than to be tried as allies intend. Quote, a king too young, I made mistakes. I was nothing but a puppet laughs at idea that he ever exercised autocratic power, blames Russia for war, says it was not the monarchs but the diplomats who caused the disaster. Not a broken old man, his body still electric with nervous energy, but his spirit somewhat subdued. And the next day, the Kaiser discussion moves to the U.S. Senate. Dateline, Monday, March 31, 1919. Headline, Senators Discuss Fate of Ex-Kaiser. Bora and Watson see suicide as easiest way out for him, others in favor of trial. Hitchcock hopes decision of Commission on Responsibility for War will prevail. And in the story it reads... Divergent views were expressed by senators at the Capitol today over the decision of the Paris Commission on Responsibility for the War to urge the establishment of a tribunal to try the ex-Kaiser for the outrages perpetrated by the Germanic powers during the war. Some senators thought that nothing could be gained by a trial of the ex-Kaiser, as Prussianism and not an individual was responsible for the crimes of the Germanic regimes. In the meantime, the Big Four are arguing in Paris. Headline, Big Four, deadlocked in Paris. French, blamed for treaty delay. Dispute over reparations. French renewal of demands for Sar Valley irritates Americans. American position is that this would violate the principle of self-determination. Conference situation characterized as serious, with possibilities of grave happenings. But by the next day, things settle down. Dateline, Tuesday, April 1st, 1919. Headline, Paris, astir with diverse peace rumors. One says Big Four had very plain talk, clearing the way for quick results. More progress is promised, but some delegates continue to be openly pessimistic. Doubt Wilson's ultimatum, but he may have said that he might as well go home unless something was done. Meanwhile, the West Coast fears about an Asian invasion is stirred up this week. 
Headline, starts inquiry of Japanese deal for Mexican lands. State Department orders embassies of Mexico to investigate the project. Calls for prompt report. Washington realizes that the Aguirre statement raises a serious question. Congressman Fallon warns California legislature. And the next day, the peace conference headlines just keep on going. Dateline, Wednesday, April 2nd, 1919. Headline, Wilson getting leaders together. SAR area may be French for only five years. League covenant revision readied. Wilson warns colleagues, tells them time for talk is over. Results are wanted. More progress yesterday. New formula is proposed to satisfy French desire for reparation. Old SAR scheme revived. Latest ideas to let France control Valley until her industries are again on their feet. By Thursday, things seem to be back on track. Dateline, Thursday, April 3rd, 1919. Headline, French accept blank check reparation without demand for specific amount. Reduced demands criticized in commons. Big Four seek formula. Solution of reparation problem is hoped for in three days. And on the same day, Japan responds. Headline says Japan must join as an equal. Cannot tolerate stigma of racial inferiority in league, says Baron Mikano. Says would not force immigrants on America. Asks only declaration of equality. And as the week ends, it's hard to say whether things moved forwards or backwards. Dateline, Friday, April 4, 1919. Headline, Boundary Disputes Blocks All Progress on Treaty. Big Four in Bad Tangle. Radical Difference on Fundamentals of Territorial Claims. French demands sweeping, not satisfied with fullest military protection on border, says American expert. Wilson makes concessions, but halts at giving up principles. Committee named to find middle ground. And things kind of blow up in Russia. Headline, Archangel forces are in peril. British send aid. Crisis in North Russia. Help rushed to Allied troops there to avert possible disaster. Shackleton urges haste. British support will follow. American engineers sent to Murmansk. Strong action demanded. Wilson and Lloyd George criticized for alleged policy of compromise with Reds. And those are the headlines as reported in the New York Times a hundred years ago this week. As the Versailles Peace Conference struggles to weave consensus and solutions out of a complex set of interests, and as you'll hear later in the show, with Wilson still believing in and trying to hang on to some of the elemental vision for a new world order that would prevent this kind of cataclysm from ever happening again. Joining us now is Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Mike, when Wilson issued his visionary 14 points, which we're going to review right after your segment, the world seemed enthused and enthusiastic about his new vision for a democratic, self-determined world. And yet, as the fighting in this global war ends and leaders gather to consider the post-war world, 
Wilson's vision is not what they're interested in. In fact, it proves to be more of a flashpoint to potential renewed conflict. Like the story of Korea, as your post points out this week. Sure seems to be the case, Teo. The headlines read, Massacre in Korea, seeking independence in Europe and around the world. As Wilson sees it, they all prefer to fight. This is special to the Great War Project. A sad little delegation of Koreans appears at the peace conference to ask for their independence, so reports historian Margaret Macmillan. In the midst of the peace talks in Paris a century ago came numerous challenges like this for President Wilson, challenges big and small. They include but are not confined to large potential states like Ireland and India and tiny movements like the Korean delegation. Wilson is being worn down and losing his influence nearly day by day. Nothing was going right in Paris. One little noted challenge comes from Japan, where, according to historian Thomas Fleming, another American ally found itself confronted by a challenge to this regional imperialist, Japan. Since 1910, the Japanese had ruled Korea as a captive province. They had deposed the Korean emperor and installed a governor general with autocratic powers that made the Kaiser look like a shrinking violet. They banned the Korean language and ordered schools, newspapers, and book publishers to use Japanese. Fleming goes on. The 20 million Koreans were not happy with this destruction of their ancient country and culture, and many defiant souls fled abroad to seek help. One man, Singman Rhee, headed to the United States. There he listened to the words of President Wilson enunciating his 14 points. Not surprisingly, the one that hits him the hardest is Wilson's support for self-determination for small states. Rhee and others soon got the news back to Korea, where massive street demonstrations erupted. Hundreds of thousands of Koreans chanted, Long live Korean independence. Fleming paints a dramatic picture. The Japanese responded with six infantry battalions and 13,000 special police. They beat, shot, stabbed, hacked, tortured, and occasionally burned alive these protesters with exemplary imperial zeal. The final toll, according to Tokyo, was 7,500 killed, 15,000 injured, and 47,000 arrested. Koreans use different figures. They claim the death toll should be multiplied by a factor of three, or even more. The Japanese announced Fleming reports that the Koreans seem to have confused self-determination with independence. They were not the same, for Japan was merely trying to keep order in Asia. Reports Fleming, there is no record of Woodrow Wilson saying a word on behalf of the massacred Koreans. Add to this, there was still plenty of unrest in Europe. President Wilson's press secretary had the distinct misfortune of informing the president as the peace conference was drawing to a close that there were no less than 14 small wars in progress in supposedly pacified Europe. That includes hostilities in Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Romania. All these armies soon began shooting at each other, and their armies were not so small, drawing in 600,000 soldiers in Poland and a quarter of a million in Czechoslovakia. Yes, Wilson said wearily, they all prefer to fight. So much for the war to end all wars. And that's the news of this week, a century ago from the Great War Project. Mike Schuster is the curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to his post is in the podcast notes. As we hit another week of tracking this back and forth of the Versailles Peace Conference, we thought it might be really helpful to inject some context about what 
seems to be going sideways. So to do that, let's jump back a little over a year ago from March 1919 to January 1918. As America is spinning up a huge army getting ready to engage the enemy. Inconceivably, up until this moment, there's actually been no explicit statement of war aims by any of the nations who are engaged in this mad destruction. Like, what are we going to do after it ends? It's at this moment that President Woodrow Wilson requests that a memorandum be drafted. It's assigned to a team led by his longtime advisor, Colonel Edward House, and his bright, young, 28-year-old aide, a New Yorker, Harvard graduate, commissioned into the Army as a captain named Walter Lippmann. They drafted a document called The War Aims and the Peace Terms It Suggests. Now, on January 8, 1918, Wilson presents this concept in an address to the U.S. Congress. The document and the presentation would later become known as Wilson's 14 Points, a declaration of the American fundamental war aims and post-war vision. Reviewing them, the first six points enumerate the causes of the war and urge, number one, the elimination of secret treaties in favor of open agreements. Number two, free navigation of the seas. Number three, removal of all economic barriers and establishment of equal trade between nations. Number four, the reduction of armaments. Number five, and here's one of the sticky ones, the adjustment of colonial claims and the self-determination of colonized populations in regard to their own sovereignty. That one's going to be a biggie. The evacuation of all Russian territory by German armies. Now, the next seven points proceed to rearrange the map of Europe, effectively eradicating the old imperial borders of specific territories and creating independent states. Now, this includes seven, the German evacuation of Belgium. That's obvious. Number eight, the release of all captured French territory, particularly Alsace-Lorraine. That also makes sense. Number nine, the readjustment of the frontiers of Italy into clearly recognizable lines of nationality. Okay. Number 10, the autonomy of Austria-Hungary. Number 11, the release of occupied territories in the Balkan states, including the establishment of political and economic independence along historically established lines of allegiance and access to the sea for the not yet established Serbia. That'll be a biggie. 12. The assured sovereignty of Turkey, apart from the Ottoman Empire, as well as the rights of other nationalities to develop autonomy in that region. Number 13. The establishment of an independent Polish state, also with access to the sea. And then finally, and maybe the most visionary, the 14th point, the creation of a world organization that would provide a system of collective security for all nations, the foundation of a league of nations. So, first consider that these points are laid out in January of 1918, way before there's any end to the war. They're globally lauded, and they're the foundation of what led Germany to agree to an armistice. 
Now consider what's been happening at the peace conference as these 14 points and the vision of a new kind of a world are dismembered. We thought it'd be worth reviewing what's actually being let go of, one item at a time. Regular contributor, Dr. Edward Lengel, has another installment of his wonderful, strong American women who served in World War I profiles in honor of March Women's History Month. This week, Ed profiles Doris Kellogg from Buffalo, New York. Not only did she serve as a nurse in World War I, but also as a truck mechanic. And not in that order. Doris Kellogg was one of thousands of ordinary women who helped to redefine the boundaries of military service in World War I. Over the course of several months in France in 1918, she not only worked in Red Cross hospitals, but toiled as an auto mechanic, assembling trucks for service on the front lines. She also witnessed and helped to ameliorate the war's darker side. A native of the industrial city of Buffalo, New York, Doris Kellogg sailed to France in March 1918. She was one of a group of four women designated for services automobile mechanics, vital work for the American Expeditionary Force's badly needed trucks to evacuate wounded to hospitals. Women mechanics were, however, extremely rare, and as events would prove, the military authorities hardly knew what to do with them. First, though, Kellogg wanted to get a taste of the real war. She got it on her second night in Paris in April, when she and her fellow female mechanics were awakened by air raid sirens. While everyone else headed for the shelters, Kellogg raced out into the street. I saw the great searchlights sweeping the sky and heard the defense guns of Paris booming loudly overhead, she wrote home to her worried parents. It was thrilling. The exciting part of this raid was that the Bosch got over our lines without being seen, so that we got a bomb or so before the warning came. Shortly afterwards, a gigantic pierced truck rumbled into Kellogg's garage carrying the chassis of a Ford ambulance, ready for assembly and dispatch to the front. To her disappointment, the Ford was coated in rust, for it had been left out in the rain in its crate for weeks. She and the other women toiled for hours to first clean and then assemble the vehicle, continuing even when Doris's friend Al badly smashed one of her fingers. The next day, they towed the Ford around the garage, but it wouldn't start, still too rusty. So they disassembled the engine again, cleaned it, and reassembled it until it hummed like a sewing machine. The four women mechanics watched it roll out of their garage with pride. After that first Ford, however, mechanical work dried up, not because there were no trucks to assemble, but because of what seemed to Kellogg like bureaucratic confusion and red tape. More likely, they got no mechanical work to do because they were women, whose more traditional roles would be to serve donuts or nurse wounded soldiers. Kellogg got a hint of the importance of her next assignment when she boarded a train on the Paris metro and found herself jammed next to three young French soldiers with gruesome facial wounds. Shocked but also inspired, she and the other mechanics went to visit the studio of American sculptor Anna Coleman Ladd, who was constructing prosthetic casts to mask the wounds of these terribly wounded men and help them return to public society. In May, Kellogg and her fellow mechanics signed up with the American Red Cross to work at a canteen near the front, working with wounded French soldiers. First, though, they were detailed to work at the vast American hospital at Neuilly, where they tended to wounded American soldiers just returning from the Battle of Cantini, and then wounded Marines returned from Belleau Wood. Although their valuable specialized skills were not being put to use, the women remained determined to do their best to alleviate the suffering they had witnessed firsthand. 
Assigned to a French hospital at the village of Chantilly on the Oise River, the women continued their work, not only with French soldiers, declining over and over their only half-joking offers of marriage, but German prisoners. Working with the Germans, many of them half-starved teenage boys dissipated the feelings of hate Kellogg had at first felt for the enemy. Tending in July to wounded from the multinational Battle of Soissons, she found herself caring for wounded Moroccans, Senegalese, Americans, Germans, and Frenchmen side by side. On November 11, 1918, Doris Kellogg heard the bells tolling in her French village and watched crowds assemble to celebrate the armistice. She rushed into the apartment that she shared with her fellow mechanics turned hospital workers. Al, do you know what those bells mean? They mean peace, she cried. With that, as she remembered, Al and Muggsy Davis burst into tears. The joy was too great. And I went out on our balcony and looked up at the sky and just felt the great sensation of peace come rolling in. As it happened, six huge American airplanes were soaring overhead. To Kellogg, they seemed to move in time with the chimes of the bells. Dr. Edward Langle's blog is called A Storyteller Hiking Through History, and it's filled with historical accounts of people that provide nuanced insights into bygone times. We have links to Ed's post and his author's website in the podcast notes. With that, let's fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. As our regular listeners know, this part of the podcast is about now and how World War I is being remembered and commemorated, how it's being written about and discussed, taught and learned here, is where we continue to spotlight the surprisingly numerous and significant remembrance and commemoration activities surrounding World War I and World War I themes. In last week's episode... Zach Austin introduced you to the Valor Medals Review Task Force. This week, we got some great news about one of our key initiatives. This is from a press release that came out on Thursday, November 28th. Washington, D.C. Congressman Emanuel Cleaver II, Democrat from Missouri, today introduced H.R. 1953, the Hello Girls Congressional Gold Medal Act of 2019, a bipartisan bill that would honor over 220 American women who served as phone operators with the U.S. Army Signal Corps in France during World War I. As phone operators, these women played a pivotal role in connecting American and French forces on the front lines of battle, helping to translate and efficiently communicate strategy. H.R. 1953 would award these women, the Hello Girls as they came to be known, with the Congressional Gold Medal, the highest civilian award bestowed by Congress for their service and subsequent 60-year fight for veteran status and the benefits that they earned with it. We've got a link for you to the whole press release. In two weeks, we're going to be joined by Senator John Tester, who's shepherding the same idea through the U.S. Senate. This is really exciting. Meanwhile, this week, we want to introduce you to another one of our Valor Medal Task Force partners, the George S. Robbs Center for the Study of the Great War at Park University, a private school in Parkville, Missouri. Joining us today to talk about their part of the program are Dr. Timothy Westcott, Associate Professor of History 
and the director of the George S. Robb Center. Joining him is Ashlyn Weber, a history major at the university who's also working on the program. Both of you, welcome to the show. Thank you, Hale. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you very much for having us. So, Tim, I'd like to start with you and ask you about the university's efforts on behalf of the Valor Medals Review Task Force. What role are you playing and what kind of activities are you guys undertaking? Well, the center is researching, we are drafting narratives and performing genealogical outreach with the actual descendants of the service members that we're actually researching. About how many are there? Between the five groups that we are researching, which include Asian Americans, African Americans, Jewish Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Native Americans, we are estimating that there will probably be 125 to 150 actual individual service members that we will review within the focus of the task force. So you're developing a profile on each one of these? Yes. In collaboration with the undergraduate history majors here at Park University, we literally are creating a biographical sketch of each service member before we begin the process of looking at, in detail, the Medal of Honor that we may possibly recommend for. Ashlyn, what year are you? I'm a junior with Park's public history program. Oh, that's wonderful. What kind of work are you doing for this? Uh, I guess you'd call it forensic research about African-American veterans, right? So that's exactly what we're doing. We're collecting as much information we can get our hands on in order to write as accurate personal narrative for each man as possible. So our park team here of undergrads with the public and military history programs and our coordinator, Dr. Westcott, we all work together on a number of different fronts to create that larger narrative. One team member's focus is especially researching the individuals themselves. She creates kind of a general timeline of their lives that we kind of fill in as we continue on. Our other member, he's focused on military citations, engagements, even mapping. He gives us a heavily detailed report of how each veteran was involved within the situation he was awarded the DSC or Credit Air for. So we want to know all of the circumstances around the event or events that they were involved in when they received those awards. You know, things like the terrain, weather, the companies involved, even the location of the country they were in, we will know at some point. I do research on individuals like our first team member, but I primarily focus on confirming birth dates, death dates, and hometowns. Dr. Westcott and I also work together in creating our databases that house all of these collections of information each man and their corresponding armed service number, any requests for information that we send to the National Archives, the status of those requests, American Legion and or VFW post associations, and really any addresses or cities we have found a veteran's connection to. Now, you threw out an acronym, DSC. Uh, it stands for Distinguished Service Cross. Is that how you're investigating it? Finding people who maybe got a Distinguished Service Cross but maybe should have gotten a Medal of Honor? That's correct. All of these men were awarded a Distinguished Service Cross and or a Freudiger. So the question is whether or not they can be bumped up to Medal of Honor. Ashlyn, you're looking back at the history of these veterans. Have you come across any specific stories that really stood out for you? Well, it's great you asked that. I don't want to single anybody out necessarily. But one of kind of the interesting things that we've run into is once the team comes together with all of this 
information, the finalized narrative. It's especially interesting to see how different each veteran's life was before and after their service. We have some doctors, we have some career military, we have one House Representatives member from Illinois, and some regular guys that just went back to the farm. They went back to their hometown and stayed there. So anyone who does genealogy would know how satisfying it is to finally see the entire story and these narratives, especially for us that work on them week after week, day after day, hour after hour, it gives us a chance to write and tell every single man's story, which is an opportunity many of those guys have never had before. And like Dr. Westcott mentioned, one of those ways they can be recognized and what's at the heart of this project is by possibly being awarded the Medal of Honor for some of those heroic actions that they undertook that we've researched. We don't want any of these men to be glazed over again, and we want to give them as much attention as we can possibly give. Tim, any closing thoughts? Tail, this project really focuses on hopefully writing some of our local and national history. Every community has a story. And as a former military service member myself, these service members become like my band of brothers when I was in the military. We do want to possibly right a wrong. We want to tell these service members stories up to 100 years later. Well, thank you both for joining us today and for the work that you're doing. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you, Taylor. Dr. Timothy Westcott is the director of the George S. Robb Center for the Study of the Great War, and Ashland Weber is a history student at Park University, which is a lead partner in the Valor Medals Review Task Force Initiative. We have links for you in the podcast notes to learn more. This week for Remembering Veterans, Frank Woodruff Buckles was a United States Army corporal and the last surviving American military veteran of World War I. Frank enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1917 at the age of only 16 and served with a detachment at Fort Riley, driving ambulances and motorcycles near the front lines in Europe. Frank Buckles left us on February 27, 2011, at the age of 110. America and many Americans have family traditions of service, and so it is here. With us today is Frank's descendant, Ken Buckles, who is an educator, organizing Living History Day events since 1996, and is the executive director of Remembering American Heroes, an organization founded in 2002. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, it's nice to have you here. Let me start with a couple of questions about you personally. How are you related to Frank Buckles? Well, it was 1992. I was curious in family genealogy, and my parents had given me a list of names that had eight names on it, and I recognized my great-grandfather and my grandfather and, of course, my father, but nobody knew what the heck it was. So I found it, and bam, it went to a genealogy center, Mormon Church, and found out with Robert Buckles, descended from him, and they had settled in West Virginia, Harper's Ferry. So I called information to see if there was any Buckles living in the area. And in those days, they connected you, and he answered the phone, and that started about a nine-year relationship over the phone. Just amazing, incredible man, fascinating life. I could talk about him for hours. And he kept saying, when are you going to come out? When are you going to come out? So I came out, (laughs) and 
when he was 99. And then I visited him every year on his farm in West Virginia until he passed. And then, of course, his funeral at Arlington National Cemetery. That's a great story. Your whole family has a long history of service, including your father, a Marine. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, my father was a Marine and was in the band, but they were sent when the North Koreans crossed the border. He was in the final withdrawal of the Chosen Reservoir veterans that were coming out that horrible battle there. And I was born in 54, and all I ever knew was that he had lots of nightmares, and he drank heavily for 15 years. And then, of course, I went into teaching and coaching, and during my career, when he was 54, he committed suicide. Didn't know anything about post-traumatic stress back then, and but I just always thought there was something different about him. It just literally destroyed my mom, who was 51 years of age, and three years later, she just gave up the will to live, and she was gone. The ripple effect on your life is devastating, and it led to me saying, well, let's bring veterans into the high school to talk to the students, feed them lunch. We'll recreate a Bob Hope USO show in the gym, and I never knew it would just turn into this huge undertaking. It's in 23 years, it's gone from being a nonprofit, remembering America's heroes, and high school kids came up with that name. We've taken veterans from all over the United States to over 43 high schools, over 90,000 kids. And what makes it so unique is my main goal is to teach young people that American men and women of all races have served and still serve this country, our country. And many famous veterans have come from Tuskegee Airmen, Navajo Code Talkers. And Frank Buckles even flew out to Oregon in 2000 and 2001 and spoke to kids in the classroom. He was 99 and 100, and he was going to come out the next year, but his doctor and daughter said he couldn't travel anymore, and he was not happy about it. In doing this work, can you tell us something that's happened as a result of what you did that you didn't expect? The number one that I was never prepared for was the healing for the veterans. In the late 90s, we had four different World War I veterans who attended, and they were moved emotionally crying and everything that said they'd never been thanked or recognized for their service. None of them were able to do the ticker take parade in New York and they came home, nobody cared. The same thing, World War II, the Korean War vets, you know, we would yell out like a pep assembly, the Korean War is not forgotten at Milwaukee High School. The Vietnam vets, it was just overwhelmingly emotional. And then the other thing, it led to the healing. That's the number one word I want to use is the healing. Many, many, many have started to get post-traumatic stress counseling, mostly World War II and Korean War veterans, and the lives changed has been just phenomenal. Well, Ken, what do you think about the National World War I Memorial that we're building in Washington, D.C.? What are your thoughts about that? Well, I know that was very important to Frank Buckles. It sure would be nice if there was a beautiful one there with all those other memorials. Okay, if our listeners want to reach out and learn more or help with your program, how can they do that? Well, we have a website. They can Google Remembering America's Heroes or Ken Buckles. The website is www.rahusa.us. And I'm going to be done with a book that's taken me 15 years. I have the stories of all these veterans that I've gotten to know that they never shared with anybody. But year after year, I got it in there, and that book will be called Remembering America's Heroes. And there is a large chapter on Frank Buckles, and his life story is incredible. 
Oh, that's great. Well, I understand at the school events that you've been holding that your wife, Melinda, has been singing over there. Hi, Melinda. Are you there? Hi, I'm here. (laughs) Nice to meet you. Hey, could I ask you to sing us out with Over There, please? I'll be happy to. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. Hear them calling you and me. Every son of liberty. Hurry right away, no delay, go today. Make your daddy glad you have had such a lad. Tell your sweetheart not to find to be proud of our boys in line. Over there, over there. Ken Buckles, descendant of America's last World War I veteran, Frank Woodruff Buckles. Ken is a patriot, educator, and founder of the Remembering American Heroes organization. And his wife, Melinda, is a pretty darn good singer. We have links for you to learn more in the podcast notes. We've been spending a lot of time looking at the political ramifications and aftermath of World War I. Some progressive and some not much so. But the aftermath of World War I also had profound effects on technology and new technology-driven industries. Take aerospace. Throughout the history of powered flight, there have been a host of prizes for achieving major milestones. One of the biggest ever was to cross the Atlantic in a single jump. It was a British newspaper, the Daily Mail, who as early as 1913 offered a 10,000-pound sterling prize to accomplish this feat. Now that's the equivalent of a little more than a million dollars today. Driven by World War I, airplane technology progressed a lot so that by 1919, a whole bunch of adventuring sky pioneers were aiming for the prize. Okay, the shortest distance between North America and Europe is the route between Ireland and Newfoundland. But doing that, you're flying into the predominant headwinds. So the adventurers all shipped their planes to Newfoundland to fly the other way. The region got so crowded with aviators that when John Alcock and Arthur Brown, the guys who win the prize, shipped their airplane to Newfoundland, they couldn't find an open pasture to work in, at least not until one of the other teams failed. Now, it's interesting to remember that in 1919, all planes were open cockpit. That means cold, miserable, and really uncomfortable. It also means you had to fly low under the weather. Yuck! These two pioneers converted a Vickers Vimy bomber, which had twin engines, and they replaced the bomb-carrying capacity with extra fuel tanks. On June 15, 1919, John Alcock and Arthur Brown flew into history and a nice payday as they successfully crossed the Atlantic nonstop, in spite of fog and ice. Prizes continued to drive flight innovation. And it was in 1919, the same year, that New York hotel operator Robert Orteig posted a $25,000 prize worth nearly $400,000 today to the first person to fly from New York to Paris. That prize went unclaimed for eight years until Charles Lindbergh's flight in 1927. Now, here's an interesting fact for you. Lindbergh's flight inside of a comfy cockpit, I might add, is usually heralded because it's the first solo transatlantic flight. And it was. 
But the prize didn't specify that. He just chose to fly solo to save weight and add fuel. I didn't know that. World War I certainly accelerated the technology of flight, and the post-war rush to claim prizes carried those innovations into an industry, all part of the aftermath of the war that changed the world. It's time for articles and posts, where we highlight the stories you'll find in our weekly newsletter, The Dispatch. Here are some of the articles and posts from last week's issue. Our first story. This is big news. In 2019 Fleet Week, New York City has World War I theme. The fleet is coming to New York City, and World War I will be a part of it. That much-loved annual U.S. Navy Fleet Week in New York City will descend upon the greater New York area from May 22nd to 28th. Events will kick off with the traditional parade of ships past the Statue of Liberty and will blossom into an incredible series of activities, exhibits, displays, tours, concerts, and appearances. This year, there'll be an added excitement as the Secretary of Navy has declared that World War I will be included as a special theme. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission is taking the lead on its own series of activities. So join us in New York. And our second story. USS Olympia and the World War I Unknown Soldier is April 3 lecture topic. 2021 is the 100th anniversary of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And this year, an April 3 lunchtime lecture at the U.S. Capitol Historical Society in Washington, D.C., John Brady, president of the Board of Directors, Flagship Olympia Foundation, will share information about the USS Olympia's role in transporting the unknown soldier home from Europe. Our next story. A prince in sky-blue uniform is French salute to World War I aviator Norman Prince. The story is about how on April 19, 2019, the French Cultural Center of Boston will present a live theater play titled a prince in sky-blue uniform, paying tribute to war hero Norman Prince. It starts at 6.30 p.m. at the center. The emotional play, written by Jean-Claude Renonnet and directed by Richard Sewell, pays tribute to Massachusetts-born war hero Norman Prince. And a story from the States. NEH Grant helps Connecticut to remember World War I. With the help of an NEH grant, the Connecticut State Library has documented more than 450 men's and women's experiences in World War I. Over the course of four years, the Remembering World War I project collected nearly 5,000 images and artifacts illustrating these individual stories. This extensive and deeply personal collection was amassed through 47 public digitization events hosted by partner institutions throughout the state. And speaking of images, a century of service with the U.S. Navy Photo Archive. January 2019 marked the 100th anniversary of the creation of the U.S. Navy's Photo Archive, currently held at the Naval History and Heritage Command at Washington's Navy Yard. The Navy's collection of historical records predates the National Archives established in 1934 and originally began in the Office of Naval Records and Library, NRNL. The first expansion of activities of the historical section 
had been the establishment on January 1, 1919 of a pictorial branch whose purpose was to collect and file photographs illustrating activities of U.S. and foreign navies. Read all these amazing stories through the links that you'll find in our weekly dispatch newsletter. It's a short and easy guide to lots of World War I news and information. Subscribe to this wonderful free weekly guide at www.cc.org forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the podcast notes. And that wraps up episode number 116 of the award-winning World War I Centennial News Podcast. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our great guests, crew, and supporters, including Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog. Dr. Edward Lengel, military historian and author. Professor Timothy Westcott and history student Ashlyn Weber. Ken Buckles, descendant of the last veteran Frank Buckles, founder of the Remembering American Heroes High School program. And I also want to thank his wife, Melinda Buckles, for singing the 1917 hit over there. Thank you to Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our interview editing team. Katz Laszlo, the line producer for the show. Dave Kramer and J.L. Michaud for research and script support. And I'm Teo Mayer, your producer and host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including this podcast. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators, their classrooms, and to the public. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as our other sponsors, the Starr Foundation, the General Motors Foundation, and Walmart. The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.1cc.org forward slash cn. You'll find World War I Centennial News in all the places that you get your podcasts and even using your smart speakers by saying play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. It also works with Siri. The podcast's own Twitter handle is at the WW1 Podcast. The Commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC. And we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget, keep the story alive for America by helping us build the memorial. Just text the letters WWI or WW number one to the phone number 91999. <laughs> Thank you for listening. So long.